Welcome to Conversation 360 podcast and this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience can shed light on what is taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to say about other parts of Asia as well. And I always say I was made in China because my generation lived with the story of how China prospered through opening up to the outside world. So when I was a teenager, we were able to learn English, to use computers and the Internet, which opened the whole world to China, to my life, to my world. Those are the words of Lin Yang, a China public policy specialist and media veteran with a career spanning policy, media, and business in both the U.S. and China. She was born and raised in China and then educated in the U.S. at Harvard University and has been named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. Lin was an English-Chinese anchor and reported for CCTV, that's China Central Television International, presenting Chinese political and economic events to the world. She anchored numerous live breaking news events that made China broadcasting history and in 2006 was with CNN's Washington, D.C. Bureau. She makes it a practice to talk with people everywhere and take their pulse regarding their world, and that feeds her optimism for China's future. Here's what she says. What makes me optimistic is the people I meet there. So no matter how, no matter each time I go back to China, I meet people in different you know, classes. I meet well-educated people. I meet successful entrepreneurs. I also meet average people. You know, when I take a taxi, I chat to with taxi drivers, and I, when I uh, go shop, I ch- chat with the um, you know small business owners. I feel like everybody is so driven, uh, and is so hardworking, and is so some has so much desire for success in their career or for building up their own businesses. I think that is actually the most important thing. Because the whole economy is built up by every individuals with their own dream of their own future. If everybody is so driven, is so hardworking, I think China will have a great future, great future with all these hardworking people. Lin is founder and president of the Innovation Ideas Institute, and she lectures at Harvard's trade union program. Her research focuses on Chinese investment in the U.S. and how to foster a healthy bilateral investment environment between the two countries. Give a listen to how she envisions future collaborations between Asia and the West. I would like to see more Western countries to go to collaborate with the Chinese companies because I think 30 years ago, the the value chain of the world is... um, for example, a T-shirt may be designed in Italy, manufactured in China, sold in the U.S. And I think in the future, maybe uh, the value chain between U.S. and China can be like this. So maybe ideas brainstormed in the U.S. and invested by Chinese capital and collaboratively uh, researched or developed by both U.S. and Chinese uh, entrepreneurs or businesses, then we have, you know, maximized uh, market application in, in all of the world. I think I would like to see more collaborations between East and the West. 
Given her deep experience in both China and the United States, Lynn is a perfect person to join us on this Conversation 360 episode. So let's get started. Here's our conversation. So welcome to Curated Conversations, Lynn. Oh, thank you so much, Susan, for your kind introduction. So when we talk about the conversations taking place in and between Asia and the West, what does that bring to mind for you? What does that mean? Um, well, when you talk about U.S.-China relations, I, I always feel like I'm very fortunate that I that I, my personal journey and my career path is shaped by this macro picture of U.S.-China or East-West economic relations. I'm fortunate that I was um, born and grew up in a new era of China. And I always say I was made in China because my generation lived with the story of how China prospered through opening up to the outside world. So when I was a teenager, we were able to learn English, to use computers and the internet, which opened the whole world to China and to my life, to my world. China became the factory of the world in 1990s, 1980s. And um, my dream at that time was to work for a joint venture in China, set up by all the multinational companies in China. And I later, um, in early 2000s, when China first launched its overseas effort, they launched the overseas channel um, for the central television to broadcast overseas. And I was very fortunate to become a TV newscaster for that network. So our typical newscast at that time was how multinational corporations were investing in China and how China made an economic miracle and uh, how China was evolving, the whole society was developing at that time. And then in recent years, I uh, moved to the United States to study, to work. And in recent 10 years, we have seen emerging like Chinese efforts coming overseas, uh, Chinese students coming to study in the United States, the tourism coming here, um, the Chinese investments is surging in the United States. And we have seen how China's um, businesses and how Chinese society are eager to integrate with the international society. So I'm very happy to be in this very exciting dynamics between East and West. Well, it's, it's perfect for our discussion today, certainly. And now I imagine that when you're in the West, people think you can uh, uh, explain all things Chinese and vice versa. So how accurate is the Asia understanding of the West? Specifically, how well do the Chinese understand the West? Well, I would say Chinese probably are more interested in understanding the West than the West is, than how the West is interested in understanding China. And uh, as you can see right now, so we, when I was a little kid, we started to learn English from middle school. But nowadays, all the kids started, you know, from kindergarten, started English. Uh, they read all the English news. They can read everything on the Internet. Their parents were so eager to send their kids overseas to study, to learn everything in the West. I think, um, and it's, for example, right now, the presidential election, and I think 
um, you can see whatever on the English news, you can see instantly on Chinese news, the translation of Chinese news. It's just the, um, the, the eagerness of Chinese society to get connected to the, to the world. I wouldn't say that there is equally amount of Chinese news in the, um, in the West. However, there is, you know, there is increasing interest. But I think you know Chinese probably are more interested in the world. Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting statistic that I learned recently that there are more people within China learning the English language than there are English speaking people in the world. Exactly. Yeah, and that that really says a great deal because you although there's been a surge in interest in Americans learning Mandarin and a smaller percentage Cantonese, it's just nothing like what you see in China. And I think uh, your your comments are really quite telling about that. Now, you've had a longstanding interest in building bridges between Asia and the West on a number of levels. What What's your perspective right now? How are How is this effort going? Mm -hmm. um, as I said, I'm very fortunate to be in the right time you know, in, in this dynamics. Um, in recent years, I've mostly studied the globalization of Chinese businesses and all the innovation in China and how the innovative society in China is eager to connect with the, to the, to the world. Um, so let's say the globalization of China, as we see, when I was living in China 10 years ago, we only hear about how multinational corporations are building up business in China. So I was fortunate to interview many um, business leaders who are doing business from the world, who are doing business in China. But in recent 10 years, I lived in, in the US and I was equally enjoying the conversations with all the leading Chinese uh, business leaders or from the aspiring Chinese multinational corporations or the emerging multinational corporations from China. Um, and 10 years ago, many of them are state-owned enterprises who are interested in natural resources, energy sectors, and many of them are also interested in real estate um, investment in the United States. In the recent three years, uh, three or five years, we increasingly see a lot of gigantic private enterprises from China who are like national champions, are front runners in the, within the Chinese economy who are eager to come to the world to do business, to invest. Um, and I think that's a very good dynamic. And um, we see in different sectors like entertainment, real estate, um, tourism, manufacturing, uh, auto, auto cars, and many uh, internet companies are also setting up offices or collaborations in, in the United States. I think it's a very good dynamic. Um, I think I saw an article uh, last week, the, um, the Chinese investment in America has been surging in recent three years, especially in the innovation and entrepreneurship sectors, and in Silicon Valley and some in, on the East Coast, in Boston, New York areas. So that innovation uh, subject we'll come to in, in, in a little bit. I want to go back to that. But meanwhile, there's, a, there's one subject that those who are interested in China are talking a lot about right now, and that is the current downturn or we could say slowdown in the Chinese economy. What has the impact of that been from your perspective? How does that fit into this story? Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that the 
growth rate in China is slowing um, due to different factors. You know, one is because China is um, has been growing exponentially in the last 30 years. At a certain point, you because you have a very large base number, you cannot maintain such a high growth rate. And another factor is um, the the economy is trying to transform from a manufacturer-driven economy to a more service and a consumption-driven economy, and that takes a takes some time for the economy to, you know, to 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 have a soft landing, good transformation. And the third, um, the a lot of the old industries, like traditional industries, like manufacturing. Uh, labor-intensive industries, I think they are all suffering from a very slow growth. But many, but I'm glad to see many of them are trying to look for new breakthroughs. That's why innovation lies in here because because the traditional economy are suffering from low growth, and that's why they have to look for innovation capacities to boost their future growth. To find new growth point for their for their you know industry for their new industry new arms. Right now, you mentioned um, the fact that this slowdown has had it, it's going to take a while for it to be absorbed uh, appropriately. Meanwhile, what about the individuals in China who are there now, specifically the middle class? We know that people born in the last thirty years in China have been living in a country where growth has been exponential, as you said yourself, you were made in China. What is the mood there, especially among the middle class? Is there disappointment that, oh my gosh, this isn't, the roller coaster is not continuing to go in the direction that we thought? Is there frustration? What's the mood? Um, one of the most important characteristics of China's growth is the emerging of the middle class. Um, in the last 30 years, there were, you know, a huge urbanization process all over the country, which lifted so many people out of poverty and produced a new class of wealth. I think that the, the new China society or the new Chinese economy have three characteristics. One is urbanization. The urbanization has produced a new emerging middle class and also uh, lifted the urbanization has lifted so many people out of poverty all over China and also produced a new class of wealth, the middle class. And the second characteristics of China is the internet. The internet has transformed the Chinese society um, so much. And as we see, I think a lot of the China's growth in recent 30 years actually was jump-started by internet booming. And uh, the internet has not only um, produced, uh, has boosted the economic growth, but also hugely impacted every people's life. And uh, then is the globalization, as we just mentioned. I think the middle class who are, who have, normally we say when people have achieved a certain um, financial wealth, and now they probably will have more desire for, for other, political or you know, other social needs. However, as, I, as far as I understand, a more of the more middle class are very concerned about their own you know, future, their family's education, their health care, and their 
how they can build up their future career and how, how they can be, you know, even more connected to the international society. That's why we see so many emerging middle class are consuming overseas, are sending their children overseas for education, are, you know, desire to have a more opportunity in their career or in their business all over the world. That's why we see, um, and that's also why, um, and I feel about this middle class. So, um, Lynn, have individuals become more vocal about their concerns regarding this slowdown? What about their willingness to speak up to authority? You know, here in the West, we view China as uh, Chinese people as reluctant to do that. We, we hear about people who are punished for taking on the government. Are, are we accurate in that? Is there a reluctance on the part of people to say, hey, wait a minute, uh, are we really being taken care of the way we were promised? Or is that, is that a Western imaginative thinking? Well, I would say uh, the middle class in China would rather um, build up their own social status or their own wealth in order to be in the elite society or the elite class of the society rather than willing to take on the government to, you know, seek their desire. I, that's what I have been observing. And what, so this, this, the, some people say that there's tremendous amount of emigration going on right now that China's brightest and wealthiest are leaving the country in droves. Uh, for example, you're here. Is that, is that so? Is that a result of um, the new developments re, over, around the economy? Or is that, uh, is, is that something else going on? Well, I think there are many factors for people to, go overseas, as I said earlier. First of all, for the business people, many of them want to, when they reach, you know, very um, tremendous wealth in China, they want to diversify their wealth or they want to diversify uh, their business opportunities. That's why a lot of them come overseas for, you know, explore business. And because also, as you said earlier, the economy in China is slowing down and also the market is getting saturated and all the living cost is actually growing so high, especially in gigantic cities in China, like Beijing or Shanghai. That's why people are coming overseas to explore different diversified opportunities. Another factor for people to go overseas is many of them are very concerned about the environment and their kids' education. In you know, in China, the education market is very competitive, and uh, most of the families would think their kids' future is the most important for their life. That's why I see so many people on the East Coast they come here for their kids' education, and some um, are concerned about the environment. Um, but as, as far as I observed from my latest trip to China last month or last year, the air pollution has still not perfect, but it actually has been improved quite a lot. And um, it, I, do you think that the, that the improvement has been in response to people speaking up about that? Because it sounds like that is one thing that Chinese have been pretty vocal about. Yes, uh, yeah, environment is so important about concerning public health. I think 
um, people have the there are many people have been advocating for environmental protection and also the government um, has been taking a lot of actions on it. I think, for example, the transportation control, um, closing down many factories, that has been helping the environment quite a lot. Because the environment is concerning everyone's public health, everyone's health, it's not only for, nobody can escape from it. That's why it is a must for the government to solve. So for those, so for so those who remain in China, and that's most of the people, some would say that a crucial requirement, and I think you've hinted that it's now more crucial than ever, is for China to become truly innovative in order to solve not only its pressing and large size issues like pollution, like healthcare and so on, but just to be able to compete in the world market in a, um, since it is moving from a manufacturing, being, the, being everybody's uh, manufacturing plant to something other than that. So do the Chinese view innovation differently than the West? Is there a, a different way to look at innovation and, and how you would describe it? Okay. Um, I also want to add one point to your previous questions of why people want to go overseas, want to go abroad. Um, because for, for quite some time in Chinese culture, even today, um, China has saying like if somebody has been living or studying or doing business overseas, he is regarded more, how to say, you're more sophisticated. No matter you do business or you um, in your social life, you are, you are regarded like higher or more sophisticated. Um, so that means you will have more opportunities no matter where you are in China. That's why a lot of people will desire to go overseas um, to do business or to study or at least have some overseas experiences that will help you your future career. That's what I think uh, is very important. That's why a lot of people come overseas. Great. So let's go back to this innovation question. Do you think that the Chinese view innovation differently than the West? Is there a different definition of what that means? Uh, well, I think people view innovation almost the same. And uh, for 30 years, China has been regarded as a factory of the world, has no innovation capacity, is a copycat. Um, that's why when that growth reached certain points, people are no longer satisfied being just a copycat, uh, being just a low-end manufacturer in the world. So right now, on the perspective of the government, um, the government has allocated so many policies to drive the innovation capacity of the country, of the economy. In terms of businesses, private businesses, everyone wants to be an innovator, uh, climb up on the uh, value chain. And for young people, for individuals, you know, everybody want to be an innovator. They want to be um, sophisticated um, people who can build up an innovative company. I think that's what is in this China society right and now. How, as we, how, how would yeah. you define innovation? Well, normally we say innovation is you have originated very advanced technology or science, which nobody else can build. And uh, what else we see as innovation. So I would think that you might look at companies like Alibaba and Tencent as companies that originally um, took what was already there and improved upon it. 
but in a way that um, some people would define as innovation, although it was more evolutionary than than uh, disruptive. And now they've moved on to, in fact, being true disruptors. I, am I wrong about that, or do you think there is? It's been sort of an evolution of the way uh, things have resulted in change. Yeah. So uh, companies like Tencent or Alibaba, a lot of the internet companies are regarded as innovation companies in China. However, strictly speaking, they are initially also like building up upon the existing technology or existing business model from the United States. And then they excel on it. They build up upon it and they make it more perfect or more adapting to the Chinese consumer needs and take advantage of the gigantic market in China. So they, they, they have been successful on it. And uh, nowadays, a lot of people are talking more actually about the indigenous innovation, which means, you know, you develop all the technology on your own. Um, so it's almost as if they've yes. moved to, a, to another level of this. So where will all this, in, this indigenous innovation come from? Will it be expats who bring in Western thinking? Will it be the young like you who are educated in the West who return and eventually lead companies? Or will it be homegrown? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Um, for example, right now, right now at this point, China is not yet a leader in indigenous innovation, but um, China has become a strong innovator in areas such as consumer-oriented innovation, like applications um, and a lot of like engineering part of the technology, as you said earlier. Um, China has been leading the world in patent applications. I think it's more than 800,000 in 2014. And it's spending more than $200 billion on research and, and uh, development. It is second only to the United States. So China has um, huge input in this innovation, building up its innovation capacity. You know, China produces 30,000 PhDs in science and tech engineering every year and is putting together policies, very attractive policies to get talents from all over the world, either foreigners or like overseas Chinese, to go to China to help build up that innovation capacity. I think, you know, that will help a lot in, you know, the sustainable development of Chinese innovation capacity. So let, let's talk about the homegrown innovation. What about the educational system? I understand, as you uh, said so clearly, that many families wish to have their kids educated outside China, not only because it's prestigious, but because uh, there, there's a kind of critical thinking that takes place that they find harder to, to locate in a, in a system that is primarily based on rote learning. Will that shift? And if not, does it matter? What, what's your thought about that? You, you're so well-educated. Um, with with a Harvard um, background, what's your thought about that? Well, Chinese education system, and especially for high school and middle school, are very examination oriented because, as I said earlier, the college entry examination is very very competitive, and uh, that's why 
all the school, the middle school or high school education have been focused on passing the exams. And if you do not pass the exam, your career, your whole career might be impacted just by that one single exam. That's why um, in school, you know, the teachers will educate you to memorize a lot of things and how to smartly pass through these exams. But I also think um, things are changing because there are so many um, schools uh, or so many private schools has been built. They hire international uh, teachers uh, to the international schools, which you know normally educate the elite, the, the children of the elite families. And also more and more like very high quality public schools um, are improving their you know, education quality. I think things are gradually changing and people are kind of gradually adopting international education concepts into those Chinese education systems. But it's a huge system, you know, it takes time to transform, but I think it is gradually changing. So that, that's, that will be a, um, that could have a huge impact on, on the kind of innovation and where it comes, not just in technical areas, but in many other areas as well, I would think. So what about, it sounds to me like you are ultimately very bullish on China's future. What is the biggest source of your optimism? You've mentioned China's efforts at globalization and how it seems to be really having some major successes there. Is that the basis for your optimism? What makes you so excited about where China is headed then? Uh, yeah, I think what makes me optimistic is the people I meet there. So no matter how, no matter each time I go back to China, I meet people in different you know classes. I meet well-educated people. I meet successful entrepreneurs. I also meet average people. You know, when I take a taxi, I chat to with taxi drivers, and I when I uh, go shop, I chat with the um, you know small business owners I feel like everybody is so driven uh, and is so hardworking and is so some has so much desire for success in their career or for building up their own businesses I think that is actually the most important thing because the whole economy is building up by every individuals with their own dream of their own future if everybody is so driven, is so hardworking, I think China will have a great future, great future with all these hardworking so people. So what are the major challenges to that? What are the things that could get in the way? Well, um, the most important challenge is the transformation of that economic model, as I said earlier, how China will transform from that Traditional business, traditional economy model built up on the traditional industries like low-cost manufacturing-driven economy to a more service and consumer or consumption-oriented economy. If that transformation is successful, I think China, you know, will have a great future. But the um, but the challenge is how, how the traditional industries will be well transformed into new ones. What could get in and the I, way of their being able to do that? Well, there are many um, 
reforms China has been um, trying or experimenting in putting all these traditional uh, industries um, to new industries. I, I, you know, I think these reforms have some challenges, but um, yeah, for example, these traditional industries, if they, well, I haven't thought about that, but I think first of all, many people are concerned about um, there are some bubbles in the economy. For example, um, there has been real estate bubble in the last um, 10 years. People are always saying, oh, what if um, people always building up the um, um, real estate bubble in the economy? And also, I think there are two bubbles. One is the real estate bubble in the economy. The other is the um, internet bubble. Many people are concerned about uh, right now the internet business in China is growing very big, is playing a very important role in the economy that very few people are very interested in. Uh, very few people are interested in manufacturing or building up industries anymore in China because that's very um, time consuming and very um, needs a lot of efforts. That's why um, I think China in the next step should develop more um, innovation-driven industries in China rather than just building up uh, properties, building up internet drain for all the young people. We should have more young people that um, will be interested in build up, building up you know, real industries like in future innovation industries and uh, have real scientific um, you know, innovation-driven economy. That will be the, you know, the biggest challenge. Although China has spending so much efforts or spending so much um, uh, money on science and education, but whether that will really deliver what it's supposed to get, um, that is also a challenge. Well, it sounds like it's a recipe for success, If but there are uh, a, a number of things that have to go into the cooking that thing up. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, you're right. It's a challenge. So, Lynn, are there other issues that you'd want to mention regarding the whole East meets West and vice versa arena? Anything that you think is important for us to mention that we haven't talked about? Um, I think I would like to see more Western countries to go to collaborate with the Chinese companies. Because I think 30 years ago, the, the value chain of the world is, um, for example, a t-shirt, maybe designed in Italy, manufactured in China, sold in the US. And I think in the future, maybe uh, the value chain between US China can be like this. So maybe ideas brainstorm in the US, and invested by Chinese capital and collaboratively uh, researched or developed by both U.S. and Chinese uh, entrepreneurs or businesses, then we have, you know, maximized uh, market application in, in all of the world. I think I would like to see more collaborations between East and West. Um, at, you know, 
in that end, we can play, collaborate the, the strengths and weaknesses of each culture. In that way, I think we can see more prosperity and more mutual benefit, benefit for all countries. Well, it sounds like that that is the right recipe, and we hope that uh, just these conversational podcasts may, may lead and help foster that. Um, I'm so appreciative of your taking the time to talk to us, Lynn. It's been really a delight to share your perspectives. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.